Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. We have got a cast-iron assurance and a guarantee from the British government. The particular problems around the Irish border are being used politically to try to frustrate Brexit. Northern Ireland must leave uh, the European Union on the same terms as the rest of the United Kingdom. Northern Ireland would form part of our customs territory. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London correspondent, who's actually in Dublin this election weekend. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor, also in Dublin. And each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. One week since Brexit Day and both sides have been limbering up with some decidedly acerbic barbs being traded between London and Brussels about the upcoming trade negotiations. Boris Johnson took to the neo classical splendour of the Greenwich Naval College to declare that the UK was a sovereign equal and would not remain tethered to EU rules and would become instead a free trading titan. But in the same breath he said Britain would be quite happy to be subject to trade barriers by way of WTO tariffs if the EU didn't play ball. Meanwhile Michel Barnier launched the EU's draft negotiating blueprint in Brussels warning that the UK would have to abide by a level playing field. And he said if the UK wanted progress on the free trade talks it would have to implement the Irish protocol and prepare for those checks and controls in the Irish Sea. We'll assess all the key issues as both sides set out their stalls ahead of the trade negotiations and we'll look at where the common ground might be found. But first, Sean, you're you're in Dublin. You haven't fled London, even though people who maybe last saw you on television might be forgiven for thinking uh, you found yourself making full use of the RTE-provided hostile environment training. Yeah, Actually, it wasn't quite as bad as it looked, although it didn't look great, I have to say, looking back at it on Friday night. Wexit. Wexit, it's exactly. Exit stage left, uh, pursued by, uh, well, three gentlemen expressing robust opinions. Well, let's have a listen to it here. Our Prime Minister, for all of the people of the United Kingdom, not just the 52% that voted for Brexit. Anyway, hope you've enjoyed it tonight. It was always a cunt. Oh, my God. We're out of here. Good night. Leave. And quite fruity language being used there, Sean. Unparliamentary un- language, un- I would Most unparliamentary. Most unparliamentary in- on, on Parliament Square uh, itself. Now, look, you know, it, Britain is a democracy where freedom of speech is cherished and people can express forthright and robust opinions about the leadership of the Catholic Church and the Labour Party. But when it comes to shouting about, come on, Chelsea, um, that's where I draw the line. Can't have that kind of filth <laughs> going out on television. So we had to cut short the broadcast <laughs> at that point. Um the three gentlemen in question the friendly uh, gents they didn't stick around long enough to to have a, a, a fulsome exchange uh, interchange of uh, views and opinions can on i suggest Brexit the booze everything. ban on parliament square may not have been rigorously enforced it may not have been rigorously enforced uh, much to the uh, disappointment of the uh, it has to be said largely good-natured crowd that were there and had been there for several hours uh, waving their flags having their party having their celebration at uh, 11 o'clock that night as brexit finally got done that was the occasion we were down there for folks there's probably no other reason why you'd be standing on a traffic island in westminster at 11 o'clock at night uh, unless 
it was for a particular occasion and it was this uh, event chiefly organised by those associated with the Brexit party. Uh, As I said, the crowd were fine, but in the nature of these crowds, people have mobile phones and mobile phones in a big crowd are the enemy of television broadcasters because we need mobile phone signal bandwidth uh, to get our signal out. So we end up moving to the fringes of the big crowd to try and pick up a signal. And of course, the fringe of a big crowd is where the lads who've been in the pub five minutes beforehand come out to see what all the noise is about. Uh, They've been uh, using the old neck oil for a couple of hours beforehand and out they come and uh, were easy meat. Um, They weren't really representative of the crowd, I don't think. So, uh, yeah, it looked bad for the Brexit party as well as uh, anybody else who was involved in the the, uh, evening's events. But as soon as they disappeared, the rest of the crowd, they just started to melt away because the celebration had happened. They'd done their countdown. They'd had their speeches from Nigel Farage. And uh, as is the tradition in London, uh, just after 11 o'clock, everybody's moving towards the railway and tube stations to catch that last train or tube or bus home. It reminds me of St. Patrick's days of of years gone by where after drawing the shorts, or sorry, being assigned to cover the St. Patrick's Day parade, because of bilingual ability I was packed off down and for the 9 o'clock news live there's normally a a willing crowd who wants to get in in front of the cameras not quite as fruity or indeed as political as the people who are behind you but Tony this is where we normally come to we talk to Sean and then we go what was the reaction in Brussels was there any reaction in Brussels what was your own reaction to to Sean's Sean's uh, live live position Uh, a lot of sympathy and admiration I would have to say for, for Sean braving all of the elements and the, the the slings and arrows of uh, robust uh, Brexit opinions. No, I mean there there were, um, as I said last week, you know there were various events in Brussels to mark um, the Brexit Day, and uh, again most of those were civic receptions and organisations uh, organised by the mayor of Brussels, for example, um, and people had uh, some private parties and and uh, ways of marking the occasion. A couple of friends of mine who are uh, British, but who are uh, adamant uh, Remainers, uh, decided to go to a friend's house to watch Spinal Tap uh, as a way of coping with um, the awfulness of Brexit Day happening on a Friday night. Um, uh, then on Monday of this week, the the new UK mission to the EU, or UK Miss You, as some people are calling it, uh, which of course has replaced OCREP, uh, the UK represent, representation to the they, EU. They were serving up haggis canapes, I believe. They were serving up, yes, they were serving up lots of British fare and uh, invited a lot of people uh, to go along and enjoy drinks. Including uh, yourself? Including myself, but unfortunately because of uh, the six o'clock news, I was not able to get to it. Um, but remarkably, the Croatian uh, ambassador made a short speech because, of course, uh, Croatia has the um, has the presidency at the moment. And she said uh, words to the effect that uh, goodbye and uh, we'll miss you and good riddance. Uh, which maybe that was the haggis. Maybe, maybe the haggis canapes uh, caused her to do that. <laughs> But apparently it was a lost in translation moment because what she meant to say was not good riddance, but good luck. Uh, and there was a bit of a, a malapropism uh, in there somewhere, uh, but it, it did cause quite a bit of cheer. And it did. It also prompted Richard Corbett, who is a, a British MEP, obviously no longer an MEP, who recalled a, an interpreter during a one particular EU meeting 
who had to, who had to tra translate the the word uh, normand uh, sagesse normand normand uh, should i say which meant uh, the wisdom of the people who live in normandy uh, but it was translated as norman wisdom uh, which of course anybody anybody who uh, is old enough to remember 1970s black and white uh, the comedian that inspired Lee Evans will, will there may be something exactly, to that yeah. that lost in translation things though Tony because I remember back in the, the Balkan War days uh, interpreters over there swearing blind to me that there were textbooks uh, and of English courses run by the, the Monty Python people and there were bits of Monty Python dialogue <laughs> used for uh, and you know there's that Hungarian English dictionary if you're ancient well. yeah so maybe there was something to that who knows right okay well, look, Sean, you're you're in Dublin via London. Uh, Dominic Rab is in Australia, talking about Canada. What's going on at the moment in the UK? Bring us up to speed on 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 the new it sounds language. Sounds like the news quiz. The way you're introducing this, it does. It's a, you know, there's a new whole the world. New, there's a whole new language being brought about to talk about the desired arrangement of the UK. The No Deal is not being talked about on Australia style. Trade arrangement has been talked about, and or a Canada-style uh, trade arrangement. This seems to be the thrust of of, of the uh, of Ten Downing Street. Well, in the spirit of George Orwell, all kinds of things are going on with with linguistic manipulations uh, at the moment. Uh, the B word is uh, officially unmentionable now, and indeed Boris Johnson officially unmentioned it uh, in his big speech uh, on Monday, saying it it begins with B, and I won't even say it. So that's off the table. Right, You're right; it's geographical terms, short hand terms, uh, Canada or Canada Plus or Canada Plus Plus. Canada these are the, Dry. Yeah, these are the all kinds of, of things. But the Canada thing is, is what the British government essentially want. That's the, the, the kind of shorthand version for what they want, uh, a similar free trade deal to the one that Canada got after a seven-year negotiation uh, with the European Union uh, allows them uh, quite a lot of access into the uh, European market, but without having to obviously contribute to EU budgets or be bound by the European Court of Justice or uh, EU rules to uh, uh, you know, in terms of direct implementation. Of course, anybody who's sending anything into the EU market, it has to be compliant with the EU norms and standards and regulations. Um, so that's essentially what they're after. But then we had this new term, the Australia-style trade deal. Which is no deal. Which is no deal. Because Australia Hogan doesn't. Yeah, Phil Hogan has pointed out, and lots of other people have, Australia doesn't have a deal with the European but Union. But is looking for a deal. Is, has, is looking for a deal and has been looking for a deal when I used to report from Brussels, and that was over 10 years ago. So they've been looking for a deal for a long time. Uh, it's not essential to them, and it's not essential to the European Union. It's one of those, it will be nice to have it type of situations. But the Aussies have been very busy in their local region, which obviously includes China as their big market. They've had some sidebar deals, notably on uh, wine access and walking to any supermarket in this country or indeed in Britain. Uh, and you'll see that the Aussies have had a notable success on access for wine. Uh, but that's about it. They don't really have that much uh, trade with the EU. So a free trade deal isn't going to make that much difference. But the essence of the Australia deal is they don't have a deal. Um, Boris has said, no deal is, is not an option. We're not talking about no deal, but they are talking about an Australia deal, which is the same thing in this through the looking glass world. Tony, a no deal situation or an Australia deal, this, this wizardry of Oz that's been talked about uh, is being laid out in the context of 
the UK not wanting to comply with our old friend, the level playing field. That's why this arises. Boris Johnson stood up and said, while the UK wants a deal, it won't be signing up to level playing field. It will uh, agree to unwritten similar standards. And indeed, it says it has higher standards itself. How has this gone down uh, in, in, in Brussels, where Michel Barnier is pretty firm on what the preconditions to any deal are? Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say about level playing field is that it has been there from the start. Uh, all of the communications by EU leaders going right back to the triggering of Article 50 by Theresa May uh, all the way back in March 2017. At every stage, the EU have insisted that there has to be a level playing field in a future trade relationship uh, with the UK. And people here in Brussels were equally baffled by this reference to Australia um, because, as Sean said, there isn't a, an EU-Australia free trade agreement uh, to, to use as a, as a comparison. Um, but in some ways, I mean, we can look at what are the key stumbling blocks in the forthcoming trade negotiations uh, and yes level playing field will be one um, fisheries will be another and the role of the ecj uh, will be another again but just on level playing field again just to remind people the eu is worried that uh, over time the uk could lower its standards uh, and regulations in order to undercut um, the the european economy undercut european businesses um, uh, the, the UK, of course, say, well, we have no intention of lowering our standards. Some, In some cases, our standards are higher than the EU's, and that's probably true in some areas. Uh, the EU, of course, sets minimum standards. That should be remembered. Um, but for the EU, I think the essential thing is that they want this free trade agreement, this future relationship, to be on a solid legal footing. They don't want to have a crisis every couple of years. Uh, and yes, the UK can say that you don't ask for level playing field provisions from anybody else. The EU replies, well, we're not giving anybody else a zero tariff, zero quota free trade agreement. And if we can't put tariffs on anything, uh, that means we've no defensive mechanism. If you do start uh, social dumping or environmental dumping, in other words, lowering, lowering your standards. Um, so again, I think it's very important to stress that the EU want this relationship to work. They want it to be for the long term. And of course, over the long term, the EU is going to be embarking on some very ambitious targets and policies in climate change. Uh, they're going to be having a, a much stricter suite of regulations. And if the UK is not bound by those regulations, then they could say, well, that gives them a, a, an inbuilt advantage. And we simply don't want to do that. Uh, one of the big uh, issues... These are, these are concerns the, that the UK is not unfamiliar with at the moment. There's a trade bill making its way through the Commons to roll over some of the uh, trading relations that the UK has with other people precisely because they're concerned that there would be dumping in the UK market by third-party countries, Sean. Yeah, and, and it's also to keep trade continuity for their exports as well to those countries. I mean, they'd like to have a, a trade continuity agreement with Japan Precisely because the EU has done a big free trade deal with Japan, although strangely enough, that puts in some question uh, the future of Japanese car plants in the UK because it's now much easier to ship uh, vehicles directly from Japan into the European market. They don't necessarily have to build them inside the EU anymore. And if the economics of building your cars in Britain mean it's cheaper to actually ship it around the halfway around the planet from Japan, then that is now much more feasible to do. But yeah, the, the, the British do want to, to maintain as much stability as they can in their trade. Uh, anybody in their right mind would obviously want to do that. The other thing uh, to bear in mind, though, with this uh, level playing field demand from the European Union uh, is geography. It's really important. Britain is 
right on the edge of the European continent. It's in between us here in Ireland and the UK. Uh, it's not going anywhere. It's always going to be there. And that has to be taken into uh, consideration for goods and also for services. Because if you did, as I did a couple of uh, weeks ago, stand on top of the White Cliffs of Dover, a few more iconic landscapes uh, you can think of in Britain, you'll probably get, as I did, a message on my mobile phone saying, welcome to Vodafone France, uh, an export of services from across the way. And you can see the port uh, at uh, Calais uh, busily uh, putting out smoke in the distance. It really is that close. And it's an uh, incredibly important uh, factor in these uh, trade negotiations that make it completely unlike Canada on the far side of the Atlantic or Australia on the far side of the planet. Tony, sorry, you were saying there. Yeah, no, I think I think one of the big issues is, is going to be state aid um, because when the EU has talked about level playing fields, what they're saying is, OK, we want to have uh, non-regression clauses so that both sides sign up to uh, not lowering the standards that are there on, on Brexit Day. So at the moment, you know, we're a week into Brexit. The UK standards are exactly the same as EU standards. So the, the non-regression clauses that would be part of a level playing field agreement, if that happens, would, would essentially mean the UK stays where it is. It doesn't lower those standards uh, below what they are. But um, for the EU, state aid is a particular concern. Uh, they're worried that the UK would pump money into ailing uh, companies uh, and, uh, again, give themselves a competitive edge over European companies who can't do the same because they're subject to, to you know, a fairly robust and uh, zealous uh, competition and antitrust regime in the European Commission. And this is not something that just applies to concerns about the UK. The US has it about China. The European Union has it about China as well, about the role of state aid uh, in in industries there as well. Sean, Boris Johnson mapped out uh, his approach in a speech, as we mentioned at the outset, in the Naval College in Greenwich. What's the significance of that? Is Is it the buccaneering echoes of the past we're supposed to see in it? Well, my first thought when I heard it was going to be down there, especially after the uh, newspaper salvos that were preceding it, was that we're in for a a bout of gunboat diplomacy. Uh, We didn't quite get that, but uh, there was a lot of symbolism to this and the symbolic contrast between this Baroque splendour of a Christopher Wren building, highly ornately decorated inside, uh, and then the, the... Brussels functionalism of the uh, European Commission building where Michel Barnier was there with his flowcharts and spreadsheets or patiently going through it. The contrast was very, very stark there. And uh, if I could just read you a little bit of what Boris Johnson said, because I think the symbolism actually really is important. He was talking about the room that he was in, uh, this Baroque thing. He said, gorgeous and slightly bonkers symbolic scene. Uh, The walls all painted up with naval scenes and uh, people setting off to sea, flags billowing in the winds. Um, all highly colourful, lots of guilt uh, all over the places. Well-fed nymphs. Should we we hasten to point out? Yeah, (laughs) well-fed nymphs and cupids and what have you. To quote the prime minister himself, not just celebrating the triumph of liberty and peace over tyranny, the official thing, but also the settlement of a long and divisive political question about who gets to sit on the throne of England. And it is visibly resolved, as you can see, in favour of William and Mary. And the result is stability and certainty and optimism and an explosion of global free trade. So uh, then he said, you know what's coming next, of course. Uh, 
the B word that he couldn't mention. But here he is. But not the E word, empire not getting a mention either. Not getting a mention either. It's all about liberty, but, hey, as, long, as long as you're British. Some stuff you don't need to say because it's all around you on the walls. And yeah, it was a the, the heyday of the British Empire based on... Uh, a certain conception of free trade. Now, you can talk to Chinese people about free trade with Britain and they'll in, talk in about opium. the unequal treaties uh, in the opium wars, the, the uh, treaties that uh, took possession of places like Hong Kong. You talk to the Indians, the British say, we brought the empire brought them the railways and the Indians say, listen, before the British arrived, we had a quarter of the world's manufacturing output. When the British left, we had hardly anything. They might have put down railroads, but they banned us from building locomotives, which we were actually capable of doing and developing our own industry here. So free trade, hmm, some of these places that they want to do a lot of trade with, there's a lot of history, a lot of baggage out there, uh, and there'd be a, a fair bit of pushback. And if you're coming along from the place where generations of captains and admirals were trained to rule the waves, Maybe that doesn't send quite the right kind of signals. Maybe it's it's good for the uh, Tory faithful, the Daily Mail readers, the Daily Express readers to see all of this Union Jack draped uh, nostalgia for the past as the springboard to the future. Right. But for a lot of other people, uh-uh. OK, Boris promising the bounty, but what about the mutiny in Brussels, Tony? Mm. Yeah, I mean, again, uh, Brussels uh, people I've, I've spoken to are were slightly taken aback by some of the rhetoric from the uh, old naval college that Sean was talking slightly about. Slightly taken again, aback. A, a sense. Very well, diplomatic. I mean, they were factoring they were factoring this in as you know to be expected. Um, you know, they they know who they're dealing with. Boris Johnson is not a man to to use uh, restrained metaphors or or uh, rhetoric or language, um, and there was an ex- an expectation that there would be a fair amount of posturing involved uh, when the UK set out its stall and there was a slightly awkward uh, scheduling thing because the the European Commission couldn't give Michel Barnier the floor until they knew when Boris Johnson was going to be delivering his speech, speech so they had to wait for signals from the UK as to when Michel Barnier could go ahead but in the event Michel Barnier went ahead first um, but I mean talking to people here this week I definitely got the sense that while there, there are clear uh, points of contention and controversy around uh, the opening uh, landscape on the negotiations. If you look carefully at what Boris Johnson has been saying, I mean, he, there's been the new phrase from the UK, and Sean's probably heard this quite a bit, is sovereign equals. And I was at a briefing uh, two weeks ago where the British uh, European Affairs Minister talked about sovereign equals, and people were saying, well, does that mean the UK is on a level par with the European Union, which is, you know, 27 countries? Uh, and the UK are now saying that, yes, you can't tell us that we have to follow your standards, or we'll just say you have to follow our standards. So, you know, we, we have to assert that we're not going to be pushed around. But in fact, in this free trade agreement, when it's done and dusted, if there are disputes between both sides, there will be a dispute mechanism. There'll be an arbitration panel. And in that panel, they will be sovereign equal. They will absolutely be uh, on equal footing and will be able to, uh, in good faith, make whatever objections they want to at, at whatever's happening. But the key thing for the EU, and, and we can get in now to this whole question of the European Court of Justice, which is a very, uh, as Sean will attest, a very hot button issue in the UK. Uh, I mean, essentially, getting into the level playing field bit, if we're saying that the UK is not going to depart from the standards it has on Brexit Day, it's not going to lower those standards. Well, those standards are EU regulations. And if there is an issue, then the only body that can arbitrate on EU law is 
the European Court of Justice. Now, that's not to say that the European Court of Justice will still have jurisdiction over the UK, far from it. It just means that if there if there are disputes in the future and they involve a, uh, a, a uh, an arbitration panel looking at a particular piece of legislation where the EU feels that the UK has, is undercutting uh, a European company, then... If that if there's a query over the actual legislation, then that query has to go to the European Court of Justice for arbitration. But the UK might argue that they incorporated certain things into UK domestic law. I mean, thou shalt not kill was invented in the Middle East, but not every murder case is tried in the Israeli Supreme Court. I mean, we you know, laws may have an origin in one place, but in terms of their enforcement, different courts interpret them, different bodies adopt them. UN regulations are adopted into domestic courts and adjudicated there. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, and obviously not every case will, will go to the European Court of Justice. But if there, if there, a case does get into a, a dispute panel uh, and they're trying to work out, you know, at what point uh, is there a conflict here or is there a problem, uh, they may have to refer this to the European Court of Justice. And equally, if the UK feels that they are being undercut uh, in a particular field, then they can appeal to European law and the European Court of Justice to make that to make that point. That looks to be one particularly contentious area, um, Sean. What what has the UK rhetoric been around that? And the other area that Tony has mentioned before is fishing, and we saw during the week that the UK is proposing beefing up its fleet in advance of a dispute there. Is that the naval fleet or the uh, <laughs> or the fishing fleet? I, th- I think they were talking about drafting in extra vessels to to help with the policing of British waters. But nonetheless, uh, there's inter- all kinds of talk floating around, uh, Colin. Literally, uh, literally floating around, and some of it really doesn't make much sense. I mean, it, it would cost extra money for this. It might be symbolic. Uh, and totemic, but fishing is, in economic terms, a really small deal uh, right across Europe, in Britain as well. Uh, it's a very small part of the economy. It's a hot-button issue in a few towns on the periphery uh, of uh, Britain, up in Scotland, north of Scotland, and places like Grimsby in England. But otherwise, why do people care about it? It just harks back to the very imagery we were talking about earlier, this Britannia ruling the waves. It's a it's a maritime thing. It's the island nation. It's Britain out there doing its thing. But apparently there was some dispute uh, involving one of the Channel Islands, Guernsey, banning French fishing boats from coming into their ports. So the French banned them from landing their catches at the factories in France. And the whole thing was quietly resolved after three days. Uh, everybody just agreed to forget about it because, the Euro- the Euro- and carry on. Because, you know, Britain does have a lot of uh, territorial waters. They are quite rich in fish stocks. But the British people don't eat most of those fish. They get exported to the European Union markets. So, you know, you can land all the fish you want back in Grimsby. Uh, but if it's nobody's buying it, it's just going to rot on the harbour side. So it, it, there's a deal to be done there, obviously, and a pragmatic deal in the same way that Iceland and Norway get involved in the uh, allocation of quotas every year with the EU and then that gets subdivided within the EU uh, in its own internal uh, allocations, and the British, I should imagine, will come out there. But it's one of those things where an awful lot of political capital gets expended for an area that really doesn't generate much economic capital. The European Court of Justice is another area where Britain, seeing itself as the you know, oldest parliament in the world, home of the common law system, the uh, being a vassal state under the European Court of Justice, as it would see it, see itself, is is something that the Brexit 
uh, voters in the UK see as intolerable and Boris Johnson is is in that camp as well. So what, what is the rhetoric like being around that? Yeah, they don't like the idea of, of uh, being under the effectively the Supreme Court of the European Union, but it's only supreme over European Union law. So wherever European Union law ha- uh, rules the roost, that's where the uh, European Court of Justice has its jurisdiction. So it doesn't have jurisdiction over America or anybody else. But if there are disputes over the uh, operation, as Tony has said, of that law, then the place, the only place uh, that has the uh, authoritative view on uh, an interpretation of EU law is that court down in Luxembourg. But if it's no a- more than if there's a dispute involving European companies in America, it, it could end up in the US Supreme Court because uh, it would involve US law or the British Supreme Court, those friends of Boris Johnson um, from last September, as we saw, uh, they would be the uh, arbiters of uh, British law. And if British law is uh, breaking away from European Union law, then that's where the uh, the jurisdiction is going to reside. But inevitably, there's going to be some kind of rubbing up against two different uh, legal systems. And I think what the British are, are keen to avoid is that whatever uh, joint arrangements are made between the UK and the European Union, that the EU's court would not be the uh, place of arbitration for those kind of disputes, that it would be uh, a, a jointly agreed separate arbitration body. Having spent all these yeah. decades arguing against Brussels bureaucracy, they now want to invent a new type of bureaucracy to overlay the linkages between Britain and the European Union. But still, uh, there is a thing called European Union law, and still the European Court of Justice is going to be the deciding body for that. And if British people aren't happy with that, I'm afraid that's tough. Yeah, well, if, but if, yeah, if I, mean, they... ju- ju- I mean, just to get in there on on the another thing, the ECJ is is going to get involved in. I mean, I've I've talked about the level playing field, and you know, a, a point of reference is is always going to be an EU directive or something. But uh, data data protection and privacy is going to be another big issue. Mm. Two thirds of the UK's data flows go to the European Union now. At the moment. Uh, the UK, because it's because of the transition, it's subject to the the GDPR, which is the EU's big data protection and privacy uh, legislation. But of course, uh, at the end of this year, it's going to be out of that. So, um, what they have to do is to create what's called an adequacy regime. So the the European Commission acknowledges that the UK has an adequate level of data protection, because you know, obviously, when there's still going to be trade between both sides. Consumer data, commercial data, the data of public sector that bodies might hold as well on private citizens. All that data flow is going to continue. Um, You're going to have data flows when it comes to uh, what they do to replace the European arrest warrant. You've got DNA, you've got fingerprinting, you've got vehicle registration. All of that involves the data of private European citizens. Now, you can just imagine that uh, there will be a massive temptation for somebody in Europe to take a case to the European Court of Justice because EU the data of EU private citizens has been sent to the UK, which is no longer in the EU, no longer bound by the GDPR. And of course, the UK has a reputation uh, as much as or even more so than the United States of using surveillance on citizens in the fight against crime and terrorism and so on. So the, the potential there for a, a challenge to go to the European Court of Justice, I think, is huge.
It is, and, and, and that data adequacy was part of Boris Johnson's speech on Monday where he said, look, Brussels, hurry up and make your data adequacy ruling and the financial services equivalency uh, rulings and get that done before the end of the year when, when we uh, leave this transition agreement. But of course, and we've stressed it several times on this uh, podcast, but it bears stressing once more, they are entirely within the gift of the European Union. There's no negotiating on uh, either adequacy or equivalence rulings. They are made by the European Union and they can be withdrawn at any time by the European Union. There's no treaty involved here. It's just a judgment by the European authorities. Well, on this island, for the uh, duration of the election campaign, the issue of Brexit has featured not so prominently. In the last Irish Times Ipsos MRBI poll, it suggested that only 3% of voters care about it in terms of making their minds up. And in the last leaders' debate between uh, Fine Gael's Leo Varadkar, Fianna Fáil's Micheál Martin and Mary Lou MacDonald, the issue of Brexit came up and it largely came into a spat of who had the more talented front bench with Leo Varadkar pointing to uh, the uh, cabinet members that had been involved in Brexit negotiations, including himself, Simon Coveney and Helen McEntee, and Michal Martin talking about previous ministers he had, but it hasn't really featured at all. The Irish protocol was something that has come up throughout the Brexit discussions from the very from the very inception, Tony. What's the status of that at the moment, particularly the enforcement of the Irish protocol in the withdrawal agreement? Boris Johnson still talking about no checks and this being a cause of concern with the European Commission. Yeah, I mean, I spoke to the European Commission president last week uh, on Brexit Day. I think it was after we did the podcast, but I asked her directly, did she think that Boris Johnson was right when he said there would be no checks and controls on goods going either way from Northern Ireland to Great Britain and vice versa. And she said, no, he's wrong. There there will be checks. And it's in the withdrawal agreement. It's there. It's legally binding. Uh, and, th- and these checks will be carried out by British officials with the supervision of EU uh, customs officials, whoever they might be, whether they're from the south or somewhere else, and the supervision of the European Court of Justice. So there's um, quite a bit of stern kind of reminding going on uh, by people like Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission President, and Michel Barnier as well. And again, during his launch of the negotiating directives this week, uh, he reminded uh, the UK that uh, the withdrawal agreement was now in force. It's now an international treaty and part of that is the Irish protocol and, and part of that requires checks and controls on goods uh, going from uh, Great Britain to Northern Ireland uh, according to the, the precepts of the pro- protocol and that will t- come into effect at the end of this year. But of course, in order to facilitate those checks and controls, you need to start building the infrastructure today or yesterday. Uh, you need to have uh, border inspection posts in place in Larne. Uh, and all of this is something that the EU is quite worried about and the Irish government is worried about as well uh, because they think the UK is trying to hedge uh, as to see what the kind of free trade agreement is at the end of this year. If it happens, if it's a very close free trade agreement, then obviously that will minimise the level of checking that you'll have to have on the Irish Sea. But the point from Brussels is, you know, you can't sit around and wait to see what happens. You know, stuff has to be in place because at the end of this year, at the end of the transition, then that's a potential hole in the single market uh, on the Irish Sea if, if checks and controls aren't, aren't happening. Right. Do we want to have a look ahead or is there any other business? Well, from my point of view, next week we have another um, plenary session in Strasbourg and it's going to be the first plenary session without uh, British MEPs, including uh, 
MEPs like Martina Anderson of Sinn Féin, uh, Naomi Long and so on, and Diane Dodds, who are all effectively out of the European uh, Parliament. It will have uh, Barry and Andrews and Deirdre Clune from here, from the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael respectively. That is true. They, they're, they're, the, they're the substitutes who've come in uh, to take up the two extra seats for Ireland. Um, we're going to have a lot of work again on the uh, draft negotiating directives. Uh, the EU ambassadors on Wednesday will just go through the, the, the key points uh, one more time with Michel Barnier. Uh, but that looks like it is uh, you know, a work that is pretty much complete. We're going to have the those directives adopted by member states on the 25th of February um, uh, and we're, we're probably going to have more back and forth between London and Brussels as to what it all means. Any plump nymphs, bonkers scenes or baroque surroundings in your neck of the woods? I really the, the hope so. Week? I'm looking forward to it but it's looking a bit thin at the moment. They can't really do that much until uh, they get into talks uh, with the European Union. I expect there'll be a bit more trailing of some of these ideas and pumping up the uh, rhetoric about global free trading Britain getting out there uh, like the good old uh, days of the East India Company setting off and sailing boats and bringing back all kinds of goodies from uh, abroad in the meantime there's things like the agriculture and fisheries bills that have been published to uh, enable Britain to carry on subsidising farmers for example or regulating uh, the conduct of fishing in the country they need to be passed through and there's a lot of that kind of mundane plumbing and wiring uh, type aspects of Brexit that just have to be processed through the parliamentary uh, system in order to set up uh, a whole new level of bureaucracy but it will be red, white and blue British exclusive bureaucracy that will then have to uh, get in touch with the Brussels bureaucracy and then have this third overarching bureaucracy uh, of the uh, agreement between Britain and the European Union, these special commissions. You make make it sound like the green painting of the red post boxes in around 1922. If I own shares in a red tape factory, I'd be a happy man today because there's going to be a, Britain is possibly going to turn into a factory for producing red tape. Uh, if bureaucracy, bureaucrats should be delighted with Brexit because there's going to be a lot more of them. Um, that number of 28,000 apparently British civil servants engaged on Brexit tasks at the moment compared to 32,000 people who work for the entire European Commission covering everything all around the world. Uh, if that's anyway half true, that tells you a, a real story of Brexit. Brexit means bureaucracy. All right, well, that's it for yeah, another... Yeah, and, and just, just on that point, sorry, to one, one final point uh, worth noting. Yeah, you talk about the, the joint committee that's going to be implementing the withdrawal agreement. Of course, the big interest for Ireland is the specialised committee that's going to be implementing the uh, Irish protocol, and they will have to work out what kinds of goods or what goods are able to enjoy an exemption from tariffs uh, and other customs formalities um, who'll be on that once the free trade agreement well we don't know that's the problem uh, we, you're going to have an overarching joint committee between both sides uh, and then you're going to have specialized subcommittees that will deal with the key uh, protocols that are in the withdrawal agreement so you'll have one for Ireland you'll have one for uh, Gibraltar you'll have one for Cyprus because of the presence of a British military base in Cyprus uh, so these are all going to be as Sean says there's going to be a vast architecture of committees and they're going to have to work out uh, who is uh, what what uh, in the Irish case what goods or categories of goods enjoy exemptions and as far as I know although it's not been made public yet uh, the specialized committee for Ireland is going to be more of a technocratic uh, operation it'll have officials uh, from the European Commission uh, London uh, possibly Stormont and and probably Dublin as well to, to sit around a table and try and figure out 
how on earth you implement the Irish protocol. Sounds like they're going to have to do, the first thing they have to do is an aviation agreement so all these bureaucrats can fly around the place and go to these meetings and maybe have a data adequacy ruling for sending each other emails. Right, well, talk about the carbon footprint. it'll keep us in podcasts anyway. Well, for this episode of Brexit Republic, thanks for listening. Uh, from me, Colm O'Mungan, in here in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, also in Dublin, but hey, I'm out of here now. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening. Thank you.